This podcast is proud to be part of the Blueberry Network. That's blueberry with no E's dot com. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to Transpersonal Radio with Angela Lynn Gibson. Remember, your thoughts upload your reality. Think wisely and always prepare to ignite. Welcome. Welcome to Transpersonal Radio. Transpersonalradio.com. Real talk for real life. Inspiring podcasts. Exploring personal empowerment. empowerment. And transformation. Through parapsychology, spirituality, and how your thoughts Up. upload your reality. And now your host, Angela. Angela L. Gibson. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash transpersonal radio. Over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Hello, Transpersonal Radio listeners. Today we're going to delve into a topic that is very near, dear, and real in my world as I'm sure it is in many of yours. I've survived the deaths of my mom, my son, my grandparents, close friends, and I've had quite a few of my own near-death experiences, as many of you know. As an intuitive medium, I work closely with clients making connections and exploring the transition from one state of being to another. A lot of people don't want to think about mortality, especially their own. And yet, death is as natural as life Life and death are two sides of the same coin. My guest today is going to share with us some secrets of life and death. Today, we're going to talk about how to go from surviving to thriving, and how to avoid three pitfalls of grief that keep you stuck in the past. Grief, although a natural response to loss, can be disorienting, painful, and hard to manage. It can also be the doorway to a more powerful and purposeful life if you know how to enter it. In this interview, you'll learn practical strategies for allowing feelings without falling apart, how to have closure without losing connection, ways to relate to others so you can minimize conflict and get the support you need. And if you're struggling with emotions or feeling stuck or having difficulty with others, you may be missing some important tools in your grief toolbox. My guest today will reveal effective strategies for releasing feelings, letting go, and moving forward so you can have a life worth living. Dr. Michelle Petticolis has been working in the field of death and loss for over 15 years. She has a PhD in sociology with a minor in psychology and has studied with cutting-edge death pioneers Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, known for her five stages of grief, and Stephen Levine, director of the First Conscious Dying Project. Wanting to take the conversation a step further, Michelle produced the award-winning three-part documentary series, Secrets of Life and Death, featuring consciousness leader Ram Das and Zen Hospice founder Frank Ostaseski, who also appeared in Bill Moyer's four-part PBS series, On Our Own Terms. Since completing her films, Michelle has been invited to share them in hospitals, hospices, schools, and cancer organizations all over Northern California, including UCSF, John Muir, and JFK University. She has appeared on Voice America's Good Grief, Comcast's Newsmakers, and KPFA's Women's Magazine. Michelle's genius is igniting our curiosity and appreciation of death so we can live more conscious and fulfilling lives. Michelle, welcome, and thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Angela. I'm really, really looking forward to this. I am as well. You know, this is a topic that is, again, it's something that people tend to want to avoid, and yet it's so important that we face these topics head on. And speaking of that, Michelle, let's start by going back to 1998. That was a really devastating time for you and a critical turning point in your life. I want to read an excerpt from your website because it's so powerful. You say, quote, A spiritual explorer for many years, I returned to my family home full of glorious notions about the mystery and sacredness of dying. I was met with the blare of the radio, the smell of cat pee, family bickering, and paralyzing emotional demands. I tried talking to my mother about what she was going through as she succumbed to metastatic breast cancer. 
I soon realized that she was more interested in finishing up her projects than in exploring any inner journey of the spirit. My father, dying from Alzheimer's, was inaccessible, at least on a conscious level. I felt confused and regretful. I blamed it on American culture, my parents' upbringing, and my own lack of experience. My ignorance set me on a path to explore death, and my vehicle was the documentary film. End quote. So, Michelle, you experienced the death of both your parents just six months apart. Walk us through what happened, what you learned, and how you turned that experience into your life's purpose. Okay, so I had just moved to California from New Jersey, maybe about six or seven months before my father died. And I went back to be home for Christmas and ended up staying longer than I had originally planned because it was, my father developed pneumonia and it was clear that um, he was going to be dying because my mother had decided that she was not going to let them give him antibiotics. Mm. He, he had a, you know, do, uh, do not use, uh, what is it, heroic methods to keep me alive. Mm-hmm. Although it wasn't clear exactly what he meant by that, but she felt, you know, that this was within his wishes. But it was really hard for her because the nursing home kept on calling her every time there was a change in the nurse's station because they they never, they were, they were concerned about making sure that he got the care he needed and they wanted to make sure that she hadn't changed her mind. But meanwhile, she felt like every time she had to to say, no, I don't want you to give him antibiotics, she was sentencing him to death. Mm. So it was really, really disturbing for her. Mm-hmm. Finally, somebody, a friend of hers, told her about hospice and brought hospice in. They did an assessment, determined that he had less than six months to live, was put on hospice. That was the end of all the phone calls. And it was amazing that back in 1998, we knew absolutely nothing about hospice. And hospice, even today, doesn't get the attention, media attention that it deserves or that people really need. People, when they hear hospice, they think, oh, we don't call hospice in until we're actually actively dying. So for, for our listeners who don't really understand this process and they don't even know what hospice is, ex- walk us through that a little bit and explain in a way that people can understand what, what is hospice, when do you use it, what is the purpose? There was a woman in England who developed it to make the passage of people who were dying a more friendly, loving, compassionate experience. Mm. And uh, when it got started in the United States, it was originally volunteers, all volunteer. And then gradually they convinced Medicare to jump on the bandwagon and pay for it. And then it got a lot bigger and now it's gotten really big. But initially the purpose was for people, for the focus to be on quality of life or quality of dying and to uh, not get involved in any heroic methods to keep people alive. And the requirement was that you would die, that your prognosis was six months to live or less. Although many people have actually passed that deadline and continue to be on hospice because they're continuing to decline. And then some people graduate off of hospice because they enjoy the attention so much. (laughs) (laughs) But that actually helps them make makes them feel better because a lot of people it's it can be a very lonely process. Sure, it's a whole team that come in uh, comes in doctor, social worker, nurses, healthcare aides. It's a fabulous support for families who are dealing with somebody who's uh, in the last stages of their life. Okay, Uh, it. They have a chaplain. There's a, an opportunity to really explore the spiritual sides of uh, what dying is about. So when you, back in 1998, when you were facing this, the dire circumstances with your parents, and you lost both of them just six months apart, you, at that moment, you didn't have the kind of background you have now. So how did you handle it? What happened? Well, I made a lot of mistakes. One of the mistakes was missing their death. Mm. So when my father was actually dying, 
I had been to see him a number of times before that, and I really wanted to be there when he died because I was curious. And uh, because of my whole spiritual background, I thought it would be really, you know, an intense experience. But I got impatient. And death (laughs) does not conform to our schedules. When I got the call from my mother that she thought he was dying that day, I didn't believe her. You know, I thought, oh, God, I can't. I I just got here. I I was about two hours away visiting my boyfriend at the time. So I didn't go back. And then later on, I got a call later on that that he had actually died. And she said, do you want to come and see the body? And I said, see the body? (laughs) Oh, yes. Wow. And that was, uh, in retrospect, that was a mistake. I think it Mm. would have been good for me to have seen the body. Uh, And I missed both my father and my mother's deaths. And I never saw their bodies. So there's always that sense of them not quite Hmm. being dead. Right. You didn't have that closure that so many people seek. There is something very, very closing about seeing the body without the spirit. Mm -hmm. Something that happens viscerally on the on the physical level than when you touch it my fa- my brother died a number of years later and i did get to see his body and it was just really amazing to be there and touch him mm. and and see that he was dead and get it so it lends credence to a lot of the funeral rituals and the different types of things that cultures engage in around the death process Well, a lot of those cultural practices are about being open to the experience as opposed Mm -hmm. to running away from it. And clearly, I ran away. I ran away. I didn't know any better, and I ran away. (laughs) Sure, and and that's a normal response to a lot of people, you know. it's Again, it's something that people sort of shudder at. They don't want to think about the Grim Reaper or death or ending mortality, right? Yep, that's right. Uh, Michelle, in your film, The Heart of Grieving, you interviewed a woman who is talking about picking up the ashes of her husband who had been cremated. On the box that contained her husband's ashes were the words, temporary container. That was such a profound moment in, in the film for me because it really drives home yet again that our physical bodies are exactly that, temporary containers. In working so closely with so many grieving people, what's one of the most profound interactions that changed your life and your viewpoint on the process of mourning? Well, interestingly enough, it was the experience of my mother's death. Mm. So there's a little story that goes along with this. I went back to help her finish up her business and uh, to get ready, like literally to go to the funeral home and, and arrange for her cremation and arrange for her, her ashes to be put in a, in a um, columbarium and the whole thing, saying goodbye to people that she did business with. And, and then it was emotionally too intense for me, and uh, my back went out, and I, I went back to California. And then... Two, maybe two and a half weeks later, I get the call that she's actively dying. Hmm. But I didn't want to go back. But there was a part of me that felt like I should go back. So I was not decisive. There was this ambivalence. Because I actually had a TV show that I was producing, and I had all these guests ready. So I didn't want to leave that. You know, I didn't want to change that. Mm-hmm. So I decided not to go back, but there was a part of me saying, well, if she's still alive, when that show's over, I'll go back. So every day I would get an email from my sister saying, well, oh, my mother by this time was in coma and she'd stopped eating and she'd stopped drinking any water. And so they said, well, it will only be a matter of a few days. Hmm. So each day I would get an email from my sister saying, well, she's still alive. And another day, and yeah, she's still alive. And then, you know, another day, and then she says, the hospice nurse is wondering why she's still alive. Wow. Then it dawned on me that I was literally holding her back, that my Mm. indecisiveness was holding her back. And I burst into tears, and I Mm -hmm. cried, and I called to the, you know, up to the heavens. They said, Mom, it's not about me. It's okay. Mm. You can die. Mm -hmm. She died that night. And, you know, it's interesting when I was listening to your story, Michelle, what immediately came to me was she didn't want you to suffer the same guilt you had about not being there for your dad when he died. So it's like she was holding on so you could come see her. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
Well, and, you know, she may not have even had that consciously, or maybe she mm-hmm. was in the spirit form and she was getting that, or maybe mm-hmm. it was just the lesson I needed to learn. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards, the, the emotions, I was not prepared in any way for the emotions. You're expecting these people to die, you mm-hmm. know? She was, it was months that we were, we knew that she was going to die. And yet the, what happens afterwards is stunning. And at the same time, there was a part of me in the back of my mind in the midst of all these, this crying and everything is this, oh, this is big. And this curiosity, what is this? Mm-hmm. And hey, how come I didn't know about this? Right. Something's wrong here. So, so that, was, that was the turning point for me, was realizing how powerful death was and and wanting to know more. So it's interesting when you say it was stunning and you were saying, what is this and why haven't I known about it? And that goes back to sort of what you were talking about earlier with your upbringing. There weren't really any talks about death or, or that aspect of living. Well, you know, I was brought up a Catholic, and so they have a whole sacrament around death. But by the time, my father wasn't a Catholic, and by the time my mother was dying, she had given up her faith, and mm. and I think all the family members gave it up at puberty. And so, <laughs> so we didn't really have that container. So we just had the Western cultural container about death. And even though I had a spiritual practice, it wasn't Buddhism. Buddhism actually has an active approach to dying and teaches people about how to handle death. But I really didn't have any way. I didn't have any guidelines. That's a great lead into what else I wanted to talk to you about, which is over the years, obviously, you've interviewed a lot of people. And the main focus for you, Michelle, was interviewing people who are open to, as you put it, the more mystical sides of dying. That's right. what, what about atheists and agnostics or others who don't have any type of spiritual belief structure or any belief in an afterlife? Can your films and your workshops and coaching help them? It, they certainly can. And not everybody in my films believed in an afterlife. There are powerful messages in there about opening to the experience uh, as a journey. This is your life right now. One of the women in the Caring for Dying film says that if you live each moment, as long as you're living, you're not dying. Mm-hmm. So to remain curious, curious, what's going on? Oh, so that's how that feels. I remember a friend of mine who was dying of uh, a really nasty cancer, and they had her on a lot of drugs because it was extremely painful. So her mind was really, really confused because when you're on those drugs, you're like really stoned. You're mm-hmm. really stayed back. And she, I remember saying at one time, it's like, oh, that's what that's like. There is this sense of her having this overview of, oh, that's what it's like not to be able to get your mind to work properly. So everything becomes curious. Well, that, you know, that's a way that you can deal with it. And the other thing I would invite people who are atheists and agnostics is to be curious about the people who do believe in sure. an afterlife. And look at that. Because, you know, what if, what if there is something that's, that exists after you die? It would be nice to, um, you know, have a roadmap. Absolutely. To at least have some ideas of what it might be like. Absolutely. And I think, again, it comes back to the same premise that you underscore repeatedly is being open to the experience. And I think the same thing goes with if you are agnostic or atheist is actually being open to a possibility. I want to tell you about one person that I I actually accompanied through most of his last year of life. He had congestive heart failure, and uh, he actually had a pacemaker, and he knew that he was going to die at any time. He never knew what was going to happen, and his biggest fear was that he would have a stroke. And he did not believe in an afterlife. And periodically, I would sort of suggest and ask him, well, you know, you've traveled a lot in your life. Wouldn't you like to have some sense of what the territory might be like? No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) But he got interested in what it was like to be spiritual. And his rabbi told him that it was to have awe. And so we would sit out on his 
back porch overlooking the Bay Area, overlooking the Bay, and watch the sunset. And one time he was really moving very, very slowly. And he was sitting in a chair, and for a long time we didn't even talk. And he was looking, not at me, but next to me. And he said, you know, the interesting thing about this, of not moving a lot, is I see things, I notice things that I've never noticed before because of slowing down. Like that beautiful cloisonne vase with those beautiful red flowers. And that turquoise kimono that's draped over the end of the couch. And I said, yeah, that's what it is to stay curious, to keep on opening. What's happening now? What's happening? Beautiful. That's beautiful. Michelle, let's talk about the huge pink elephant in the room. Fear. Why do people have so much fear around death? Why are people afraid to talk about mortality? Where's the fear coming from? A lot of the fear comes from the unknown, from lack of control. Those are two big sources of fear. Uh, there, you know, there are sources of fear just in the physical body. We're wired to want to control things as much as we can because if we don't know what's going to happen, you know, some monster may come along and eat us up. Mm-hmm. That's actually wired into the body is fear of the unknown. And we have a culture that literally represses or hides all information around death. And we put people in the hospitals, we put them in warehouses where we hide them away. It used to be in the past, they had a room, the parlor, which was literally for people who were dying and where to put the body after they died. And we don't Mm -hmm. do that anymore. So everything is concealed. So the more it's concealed, the more people are afraid because they don't know how to handle it. And a lot of people have moved away from their religious background, so they don't even have the guidance Mm -hmm. around that. Mm -hmm. The biggest fear comes from people who they're afraid of of that annihilation of ceasing to exist. Oh, yes. I mean, that's a really hard thing Mm -hmm. to fathom, is how is that that I'm no longer going to be around Mm -hmm. anymore? Yes, the the fear of loss of identity and personality. Or consciousness. consciousness. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's hard. That's hard to wrap your brain around. Certainly. I can understand. I have a little bit of a different viewpoint. I used to have that. I was agnostic. For a short period of time, even atheist, that's a whole different story. But I, I can tell you, you know, I went into the hard sciences purposely to get away from all the, you know, quote, quote unquote, woo woo stuff or religious or spirituality or any of that stuff. And I was hardcore in the sciences. And I have to tell you that I have had way too many experiences over my lifetime that have supported reincarnation and afterlife and that consciousness actually does survive the demise of the physical body. It's incredible. It is. And in fact, there's a lot of data out there. A lot. It's just that the scientific community refuses to look at any of it. But there's just amazing stuff that cannot be explained any way else, but that that there's consciousness that exists separate from the body. Absolutely. And you talk about being in awe and being curious and having excitement. I'm doing that right now because I am seeing an increased interest in research you know, IANS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies, we have uh, IONS, we have several different groups of scientists who are looking at the survival of consciousness after death and really starting to take it seriously. And that's so exciting for me. Yes, for me as well, for me as well. And, and you know, like you, I also have that very scientific side of myself. So I love it when, you know, we (laughs) hear from the scientists and they say, you know, there's absolutely no way that this could have have any explanation. Mm -hmm. And the most amazing things are the people who come back to life. And there is no way that they could have come back to life. It's like impossible. There is Mm -hmm. no scientific uh, (laughs) explanation for it. And they come back to life because, hell, it's, it's not time for them to die yet. Exactly. And I've had a couple of those personally, and I've known people who've gone through that. So, you know, there's a lot to this story, a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. And so that's, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing, Michelle, to bring a lot of this to the forefront and to stop hiding all this, really start looking at it. We know historically rituals and ceremonies around death and stories about the afterlife have been around since ancient times. Some of the most elaborate and well-known, of course, are those of the Egyptians. 
And Latino culture celebrates El Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Hindus have a sacred practice in preparing and cremating the bodies of the deceased. Tell us about the Native American folktale, Old Man, Old Woman, and your film, The Origin of Death. Well, this is a Siskiyou folktale, and most Native Americans, in fact, most spiritual cultures, have some explanation for the origin of life. The tale of old man, old woman is about the origin of life, but at the same time also the origin of death. Old man and old woman kind of go back bicker, as (laughs) as men and women sometimes do, and old woman says to old man, he says he wants to have the first say. She says, that's fine, as long as I have the last say. Ah, yeah. So, you know, they bicker over how men will get food and how different things take place in living. And then it comes to death and old man says, well, I think we should throw a buffalo chip into the water. And if it floats, then people will be reborn and live forever. And old woman says, no, I think we should use a rock. And if the Mm. rock floats, people will live forever. If a a rock sinks, well, then they'll die. Uh, And in this way, there will be, you know, more room for new people and that people will live their lives more consciously. But then the story continues and old woman actually has a baby and she loves this child very much. And then one long, cold winter, this child becomes sick and dies. And then she goes back to old man. She, you know, mournfully and grieving, you know, just feeling horrible. She says, I want to have another say about death. And old man says, no, you had the last say. Oh, wow. So, you know, in, on a conscious or intellectual level, we know that there's a lot of goodness about the fact that we have a limited lifespan. It makes us treat our lives more carefully. That is, if we have a consciousness about it, and exactly. that's part of my job. <laughs> exactly, yes. But also that it makes room, that there's this clearing out, there's this, this always this change and, mm-hmm. and room for other people. Exactly. And it is the natural order of things. However, when it comes to you and when it's the person that's most near and dear to your life, it's another story. Exactly. And it's very difficult. Then suddenly it's like, wait a minute. Mm, Exactly. (laughs) I want to change that rule. (laughs) Right. Rules apply to everyone else but me. Yeah. (laughs) As we've been discussing, Michelle, we know that... We have cultures, uh, United States is one of them, uh, probably, I guess we could say a lot of Western culture. We have cultures who suppress or ignore the very idea of death. From your viewpoint as a sociologist and a grief expert, what are the consequences of the lack of cultural dialogue about death? Well, one of the consequences is, is that we try and keep people alive long past their expiration point, and that mm-hmm. we expose them to way more suffering than is necessary in the final stages of their lives, and that they actually aren't able to do the emotional, psychological, spiritual preparation that they really should be doing before they die. So that's one of the biggest consequences, is the, the pain and suffering, and that's not even mentioning the expenditure of money and resources. Mm-hmm. Yes. But that people actually, the saddest thing is that they don't get to prepare. So it's almost an excuse to keep ignoring. It's a positive feedback loop. Uh, well, it, I don't know if it's positive, but it definitely is a feedback oh. loop. <laughs> Sorry, that, I'm, using, I'm using that in a scientific term where yes. one thing reinforces another, another thing and it, yes. yeah, and it just keeps going. And as long as people don't know about death or they don't know what the options are because they're so busy trying to keep their heads in the sand and not pay attention to it, then they get caught up in that whole medical pathway. And it's Mm. very hard to pull out because there's pressure to follow the routine that's set out. It's in the hospital and doctor's interest for you to stay in their system. Although, you know, some doctors, and, and there is change, there has been a start uh, of change in that where, well, it has to because we've got so many baby boomers heading towards mm. middle age and dying, it's mm-hmm. going to collapse the system if they don't change it. But for a very long time, it, the way in which money, the, the hospitals to reimburse for their expenses is based upon, uh, what is it, treatment. They don't get any money for helping you die. They only get money for treating you. Mm. So they have a monetary incentive to drag the process yeah, beyond. Well, 
Yeah, I mean, and that's understandable. It's an organization, and it has it has its needs, and it's got these beds. And mm. so there is a way in which the whole structure encourages that, and it's difficult to break that until you you know somewhere along the line you break that you break the you, you start to develop some consciousness around that. There was a doctor I don't know that I can pronounce his name Atwal Gwan. He wrote an article from his own experience of helping, you know, caring about his patients and then being afraid to tell them that they were dying because he was afraid of taking away their hope, but then seeing the consequences of that. So a lot of this comes from when you get down to the doctors from a real place of caring and not wanting to destroy hope. Mm, yes, and that's so important because that, that is such a fine line. You, you have to allow space for hope so that there is space for healing. If that's meant for that person's path, you don't want to destroy that prematurely. That's right. That's right. But it would be so different if we had that conversation about death way, way ahead of time before we mm. were even dying so that we knew that we had options. Exactly. Exactly. And speaking of that, you know, I, I've been around people who simply pretend death doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And I've been around those who are fascinated by or even somewhat obsessed with death. What advice do you have for approaching death in a more balanced, measured, healthier manner? As I said before, to be curious, uh, to... There, it depends on whether you're talking about people who are actively dying or mm-hmm. have gotten a, 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 what is it, a terminal diagnosis, or they've been diagnosed with cancer, and even though it may not be terminal... It certainly is death's calling card. Mm-hmm. Then there are certain things that those people should do or might want to do to help prepare. But then none of us know when we're going to die, and any of us could be taken out in, in, you know, in the blink of an eye. So exactly. it's good to actually do this anytime, <laughs> you know, right. however old you are. So there are a number of things that, that I would recommend. The first being actually thinking about how you want to die. We think that we don't have any choice. We don't think about it. And so we sort of leave it up to chance or to the medical establishment rather than saying, well, how would I want to die? And some people, when asked that question, will say flippantly, oh, I want to die in my sleep. Mm. But if you actually ask them to think about that question and you invite them into greater dialogue around death, many people change that to wanting to be surrounded by their family and finishing up any last-minute business with their families, dealing with stuff like forgiveness and saying last things to precious people about being, about loving them and being grateful for their being in their lives. So that's part of it, too, is finishing up the emotional part. And then there's another part, which is when you know that you're, you sort of have a sense of an expiration date, is seeing your life as a whole, actually doing a life review and seeing how you have arrived at where you are and acknowledging, having that acknowledgement that, that it was a good life. Or if it wasn't, to come to terms with that and, and, and self-acceptance, whatever it was. So over decades, I've done what seems like endless research on the death process and end-of-life preparations for loss of the physical body. I recently found the following quote. At the end of life, people aren't usually looking for new answers to the age-old question of what happens after we die. Instead, they think about the life they have lived and what they have known in the past. In your research and experience, do you find that to be an accurate assessment? Is that kind of what you were just describing? I think that there is a need for doing that as part of the process of dying. If the person who is dying does not have a way of understanding the possibilities of life after death, if that is not real to them, then that's the, that's the choice they have. That's the only choice. Well, no, it isn't the only choice. The other choice is that, that they can make each moment of, their, of the rest of their lives meaningful to them. And that could involve having conversations with family members or maybe even just sitting out in the garden and enjoying the sky and the sound of the birds. Mm. It is worthwhile, though, to consider what happens after we die. And if you have a belief system that enables you to look at that, to prepare yourself, the biggest and most important preparation would be learning to meditate. 
and to be able to quiet the mind and the body to prepare yourself in that way. It makes everything easier when you can do that. I agree. Meditation is a valuable tool. Michelle, do you personally believe in reincarnation? Well, I believe in an afterlife. And from the readings that I've been doing, which I'm telling you I resisted reading for a while because it felt like a really slippery slope, <laughs> but I've been reading, <laughs> you know, I've, I've read a lot of people who have written books about near-death experience, and I've been reading this psychic medium channeler who has interviewed people on the other side, mm. who ask, and he asks people what it's like on the other side, and he tries to be very scientific and rigorous, which is really cute. <laughs> I mean, he does, you know, he has, you know, has to have, you know, a certain number of, what do they call them, proofs that he's actually has contact yeah, with, validations. with a particular mm-hmm. person. Validation, yeah. And so he, uh, he, he'll mention certain things, and then he has the sitter with, that, with him that knows the person who's dead, and mm-hmm. they'll confirm that, yes, that's. The things that he wouldn't know otherwise. Mm-hmm, exactly. So he interviews them, and the description of what it's like, life and death, and whether or not you reincarnate is this concept of the oversoul. Have you heard about the oversoul? I have, but for listeners who may not have, please share with us. Yes. So imagine or think about your hand. And so the hand is the oversoul, and the fingers are different lives that the oversoul lives, okay? And so you have this hand, but each of the fingers have their own experience, you know? Mm-hmm. If you pinch one finger, the other fingers are not pinched, right? Exactly. So each person who goes in, who lives, who becomes embodied and lives, they're one of the fingers on that hand. And they're all interrelated. They're all part of the same oversoul. And they're connected. And, and they might, uh, and I, as I understand it from the other, on the other side, time is not linear. Multidimensional, and you could be in any any time at any time. Exactly. So you're existing simultaneously, and yet you also retain your own consciousness. Now, what I also understand is that when he's doing, when Jeffrey's doing these interviews, he's only interviewing the people who are still communicating with people who are embodied and alive. That there may be, and there there's a suggestion that there's another, there are other levels to existence after death. Mm-hmm. And that goes right into the whole concept of quantum physics and string theory and parallel uh-huh. multiverses. So yes. that's and that's a whole different area that we could just go way down the rabbit hole. Uh, and that's another one of my areas that I'm just fascinated with. But I would say that based on that type of information, and not to mention several other, again, the same thing with near-death experiences you were mentioning earlier. There have been so many validations for reincarnation, for the concept or idea of reincarnation. Mm-hmm. Oh, when you say reincarnation, I guess what I'm understanding is the person dies and then come, is reborn. And Their consciousness. Mm-hmm. Their con- uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I guess what I'm understanding is from the near-death experiences is that the consciousness continues after you die. Mm, yes, for the near death, yes. The reincarnation would occur, of course, after the absolute and final physical death. For example, when I've had my near death experiences, I obviously I come back into the same what I call meat suit that I have already. But right. at some point, this particular meat suit, let's face it, it's going to expire. And so my understanding is that consciousness actually does survive that. And I, at some point, choose to either stay in spirit realm or celestial realm, or I choose to come back into another physical body. Okay. Okay. In your search for answers, in all your work in researching death, what have been some breakthrough moments for you? Well, I think one of the breakthrough moments, of course, was around my mother's death and getting me on this whole path. But another breakthrough moment was when I went down the rabbit hole, and I actually had a number of teleconference calls with some people like Jeffrey Mark, who, was, who interviewed people who had passed away, and PMH Atwater, who has written, oh, I don't know, 15 books on near-death and the experience. And she goes back, do you know PMH Atwater? Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Okay, so she does. She does these very interesting semi-scientific investigations of what happens to people when they come back after a near-death experience. And it's actually extraordinary how they are changed by the experience. Exactly. 
And she says, well, you know, we can't necessarily validate what they tell us happened when they were dead or near dead, but we can observe how they're physiologically changed afterwards. And they do. They, there's increase in, in psychic abilities. And, yes. Uh, there are, among children, there's major boosts in both math and artistic uh, capacity. The children sometimes are, are, like, surpass their parents, and it creates a great deal of stress and conflict. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so that was really compelling to me because at that point it was like, oh, this is like too, this is like too weird for me. You know, I can mm-hmm, believe, right. you know, my idea of what happens after we die is we all become, you know, members of this uh, pool of consciousness. And I didn't necessarily believe that individual consciousness continued to exist. It was Mm -hmm. more like we all become one, you know, Mm -hmm. dissipate and all become this mass consciousness. Exactly. And uh, so reading PMH Atwater stuff and reading the other near-death experiences, that certainly called that into question and opened my mind. And then when I read all the stuff about the, the proof, the stuff that happened that could not be explained. Mm-hmm. Do you know the story about the sneaker on the ledge? Yes, but share that, please, with our, okay. with our listeners who haven't heard that. Well, I'll see if I can remember the gist of the story. But there was a woman who was on an operating table for some issue, and she died. Mm-hmm. And in her death, her consciousness left her body. And she actually saw everything that was going on around in the operating room. And then she... She went up to the next floor and the next floor after that, I guess, and she floated out and saw that there was this sneaker on this ledge. And when she came back into consciousness, came back to her body because they actually got her to start again, she Mm -hmm. told a woman, I don't know whether it was a nurse or it may have been a nurse, and the nurse confirmed that there actually was a sneaker on that ledge and there was absolutely no way to see it except, you know, from inside the building, up, you know, two floors up, and this woman, I guess, had never even been on that floor. So, so that was the sneaker. It was like, wow, there, how, could she, how could she have known about that? Exactly. And then there was another woman who had gone through some amazing operation and uh, that was cutting edge. Nobody had ever done it before. I think they took all the blood out of her body, mm-hmm. and then they mm-hmm. put it back in it. So she was literally dead for a while, and she mm-hmm. had a consciousness, and she saw the operation. Yes, And she was a musician. So afterwards, she recounts her experience in the operating room and what she was aware of. And she could actually mimic the sound that the machine made. And she mm-hmm. could describe procedures that nobody else had ever seen. Exactly. And it, that one, uh, you're referring to Pamela Reynolds. She, yes. In her 30s, she had an operation for a brain aneurysm. And exactly, it was a cutting edge, at that time, cutting edge surgical technique where they did drain all the blood from her body. Her brain ceased to have any electrical activity, so in essence, she was brain dead. So that removes the often used argument, oh, well, somehow she came out of anesthesia or she could still hear. There was no consciousness in her physical body. She was actually out of her body. Right. Fascinating, fascinating. You know, those are kind of like the juicy stories. The other thing that kind of shifted my way of thinking about it, right after my parents died, I became really interested, and I started collecting stories. People would tell me these amazing stories around things that happened after somebody died, like electrical disturbances, mm-hmm. radios going on and off. One friend, this was a friend of mine. This was not like something I read somewhere. She said after her mother died, her mother, when her mother w- was going into, I guess it was cardiac arrest, she insisted that her daughters call 911. So the, the people came and dragged her away and everything. And she died on the way to the hospital. So there, she died in the midst of this like, chaos. And so the daughters didn't do anything about it. She was taken off to the morgue, and they were in their apartment. And all this electrical disturbance happened, you know, where the radios would come on and off, the phone would ring, all this stuff. And finally, my friend said to her sister, she says, I think we need to go and check on mom at the morgue. So they went there and, and they, they saw the body and they said, Mom, it's okay. You've died. It's all right. 
And then electrical disturbances stopped. Yes. In my line of work, what I do with the intuitive mediumship, that kind of story, I hear that quite often. Sure. It's so amazing because when I'm doing the work I'm doing, it's not about me. I'm simply a conduit. I'm simply the messenger. I get to experience this right along with the person I'm sitting with. And I'm in awe that this is happening. And it's validation for me as well that these events do occur. Yes, they do. Then you get these really weird stories. One of the first stories I heard was this woman, the mother of the person who was telling the story, her husband died. He actually, the day that he died, he insisted upon taking a shower and getting dressed, and then he died. And shortly after he died, the doorbell rang, and it was a florist delivering flowers to the mother. Now, they hadn't even announced his death to anybody, and it turns out that the flowers were her mother's favorite flowers, and there was no car. And when they called the florist, there was no record of who had ordered them. Wow, I just have goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, <laughs> Let's switch gears for a moment. Sure. Because we could talk about these great stories oh, all I day know. long. I and I just, you know, just fascinating. But let's talk a little bit about the people left behind here in the physical plane when someone dies and they transition to wherever they transition. Let's talk a little bit about the grief process. Now, obviously, there's a lot of anger and guilt and frustration around the death process. Anger with oneself or anger at those who have left this physical plane. You talk about a recipe for forgiveness around the grieving process. What is that? Well, it involves forgiving both yourself for any mistakes that you made. And that's really common in a lot of the grief groups that I've, I've led. People have remorse because it's really impossible to be perfect around somebody's death. So we always have, you know, some, could we have done this better? And so the, the first thing is to forgive yourself. The more difficult thing is to forgive the person who died because it's difficult for us to even acknowledge that we're angry at them for leaving us. That's it. Exactly. And so what happens is that the anger gets displayed. So we find ourselves having arguments with our family members, or we argue or have conflicts with the medical personnel. You know, we, we find stories about how they, you know, botched the whole thing. I actually have a, a place of compassion for, for, for doctors and nurses, because I'm sure they get this a lot. Right. They're a really, really easy target for people being upset afterwards. Exactly. And, you know, people will call up, uh, you know, just in the, the daily life of bureaucratic United States on, you know, some innocuous thing. And, and the person who is grieving will just lash out at them because they have this anger and they, and they don't have a place to put that anger. Exactly. Again, that comes full circle to being able to have conversations as a family, as friends, as a community, as a culture around this whole concept and process of death and dying, if we could get to the place where we could become more educated and understand it, we could probably mitigate a lot of these post-traumatic events that happen. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that there are cultures that have recipes for handling death that uh, are much more successful around us than our culture is the Jewish culture. They have a whole prescription for how to handle death that goes for a whole year and even beyond a year. Certain things that are are supposed to be done, which set in mind for people that it takes time Mm -hmm. to absorb this change. And, uh, you know, so they have all these rituals and and prayers and things that they follow that, that give them guidance, give them guideposts for, for handling things. And that's so important. It's so important to have that, and it's important to have support. Yes, it's very important. It's essential to have support. And grief is, it's not just emotions. It's actually a physiological response to loss that, that's literally wired into our bodies because we are embodied. We have these bodies, and they react to loss because we're social animals. And when you take away a strong social bond, it's a threat to the organism. Absolutely. And so you have these responses, these, you know, this cascade of, of chemicals going on in your body that, that are a, a reaction. And we need ways to, to release the energy instead of it getting pent up in our body. That's exactly right. Death usually manifests as a sudden death of a loved one or 
It can also be a long, drawn-out terminal or chronic illness where the loved one dies after many months or years. Have you noticed a difference in the grieving process in those two circumstances, or does grief follow a similar pattern regardless of whether death was sudden and unexpected or anticipated with plenty of planning room? Well, it does seem that when somebody dies suddenly that that is very, can be experienced as very traumatic because you're going along in life and then, and then it changes on a dime. Mm-hmm. Whereas if somebody is dying slowly, there's a way in which you get used to this and you have this sense of that end coming. That doesn't change the fact that when the actual end shows up, you're like in a whole different universe after that, and that is a bit of a shock, mm-hmm. and you still have to dust to it, you know, because there's no way that you really can grieve ahead of time because it's just not the same. In, in one of the films, I, uh, there's this man who says, and I, would Im- and I imagined what it was like when my wife wasn't going to be there any- anymore. And I said, oh, so this is what it's like. He said, but of course, it mm, never exactly. is. Exactly. You know, yes. It's not. It's not like that at all. It's just, you, you just cannot until you're there. It's true. It's, yeah. you, you just can't. It's true. And uh, personally, I've experienced both the sudden death of my youngest son that was unexpected on some level. And I say on some level because I've always had psychic and intuitive. And I, there was deep down in my core a little seed that said something's not right, something is going to happen, but I ignored it, I squashed it. I didn't want to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, so it, for all intents and purposes, it was absolutely sudden and unexpected. And then I've gone through, you know, for example, my grandmother who went through Alzheimer's and, and bladder cancer, it was a long, drawn-out process. And it's exactly what you said. You know, I, I was just waiting for the phone call, waiting for the phone call. This went on for months, years. But when the phone call actually came, there was still that drop in my stomach and feeling cold and surreal and, you know, having the breakdown because it's, it's exactly what you said. You can't pre-prepare for grief. So sometimes probably the more important variable in terms of response to the loss, is the quality in, of the relationship. And not even just the quality, mm. but the quantity. It's, if you spend a lot of time with somebody, that's going to have a major, much major impact on you than if you hardly see them at all. The loss will be much more profound. Because you're, everything in your daily life reminds you of that loss. Whereas, yes. you know, I, I certainly grieved my, my parents, but I had moved to the other side of the country. I was only seeing them once in a while. So it would well up, but there were long periods when I wouldn't think about it because they weren't part of that phase of my life. So people who are really, really closely intertwined that, you know, work together or, you know, they just spend a lot of time and then one of them is torn away, it really takes a while to rebuild your life without that person anymore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Michelle, over the years, have you noticed any changes in nurses or doctors' perceptions or cultural practices or beliefs surrounding death? Well, I think it's starting to change. I think it has to change, as I said before, because of the huge baby boomer bubble that's moving into middle age and, and older age. And so the medical system is going to have to respond. But there are also some really wonderful pioneers that are trying to change the way in which doctors view death. But it's still a long way to go. There's still a long way to go. People still shy away. What I've noticed is that actually the population, the general population, is more curious about it. Oh, and that's important. In a sense, they're going to be the wedge or the, the, the push that's going to make the institutions change. You know, we have these things like death cafes where people get together and and talk about death. Or there's another initiative called Death with Dinner where people talk about death there. So there is an impulse, there's an energy towards that. And then, as I said, the, the fact that we're the aging population, hospice and their number of healthcare initiatives for getting people to talk about end of life wishes. So that's starting to put it on people's tables bring it out of the closet. So there's a lot of that going on. What insight and information would you like to share with those who are terminally ill and nearing the end of their lives? Be curious. Be open. 
continue to live every moment, develop a capacity for awe. If you are in pain, it's okay to get pain relief because if the pain is too great, you're not going to be present anyway. So it's all right. And it's really important to talk to the people that you care about and say goodbye and forgive those that need to be forgiven and be forgiven. And then, of course, the most important thing, I think, is right now, before you're in that place, learn how to meditate. It'll help a lot. Mm. Yes. What advice and guidance do you give for caregivers of those who are terminally ill? Well, I have a number of things I can tell them. One is to be curious and to treat it as an adventure. Two, to take care of yourself, because if you don't take care of yourself, you won't be able to be present and give to the other person. And three, you can't change anything. You're not that powerful. You can be present with them. And that's the biggest gift you can give. It's not all the running around. It's not all the taking care of the details. It's actually being present and spending quality time with the person who's dying. It's one of the biggest regrets that I have gotten in my grief groups from from people who have lost dear ones is that they were so caught up in all the medical and appointments that they weren't, they didn't spend quality time with the person. That's powerful. What words of wisdom do you have for each of us as mortal human beings? What words of wisdom do I have for each of us? It's only a ride. Mm. I have a yoga teacher who said, we are spiritual beings having a human adventure. Yeah, exactly. What practical strategies can you share with our listeners for allowing feelings that emerge around caregiving and dying without falling apart? Well, here is where that meditation practice comes in handy. It's opening to the feelings rather than shutting down or shutting them off. But in a way that acknowledges that you have this energy that needs to be released. So there are a number of things that you can actually do that help you release that. Sometimes it's just simply breathing and breathing around, noticing where the grief or the pain, because there is pain around grief. There's a physical feeling of pain. Go to the pain, breathe around the pain. Something that really helps a lot is making sound, singing, vibrating the area, and that helps release. If there are feelings of anger, tear up a phone book. Go out and chop wood. Release the energy. If you don't release the energy, it can actually make you sick because it gets stuck in the body. Yes, that's exactly right. How can we have closure without losing connection and valuable relationships? How can we have closure? I think that part of the process of closure is acknowledging the good times and letting go and forgiving the bad. So there's this process of forgiveness where you acknowledge or you recognize your regrets and your resentments. Regrets are the things you didn't do. The resentments are the things that you feel the other person didn't do. And then when you are finished with all that, all the regrets and resentments, then you go to the appreciations and the acknowledgments. The appreciations are acknowledging all the things that you really love about the other person. And then the acknowledgement is the things that you did that you brought to the relationship. And that kind of creates closure. But then there's another thing. You can do a ritual around the loss in which you do something very acknowledging of the person that you lost that also requires you to do something a little scary or a little bold. There's some really great examples of this in my film, The Heart of Grieving. The the woman who had the temporary container, mm-hmm. she finds out that when her husband dies, that the place where he's going to be cremated is near Muir Beach. This is a beach in California. and Muir Beach was a place that her husband liked to go to when he was having difficult times. And he would sit there and he would look at the ocean. Then he would go in and he would swim in the ocean. And he would always try and get her to go into the ocean. But she didn't ever want to go into the ocean because it's the Pacific Ocean. It's cold. It's freezing. (laughs) So when she realized that the cremation was going to be at this crematorium near Muir Beach, 
she made a commitment that she would go into the water. So she tells this great story about arriving. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. The fog is coming in. It's blustery. There's no sunlight anymore. Most of the people have left the beach already. And she's there with a few friends. And one of them says, you know, the intention's enough. You don't really have to go in. But then she remembered all the stuff that her husband went through. She pulled off her clothes and she jumped into the water. And she said it was amazing because it was like she was surrounded by her husband and the universe. Hmm. So doing something bold and powerful like that is also another way to get closure. You create this this whole process that you go through. How can we relate to others so we minimize conflict and get the support we need? Well, if you take care of the first two, it's going to make the relating to others a lot easier. For example, if you take care of your anger, you're less likely to lash out at other people. That you're going to be able to be more present with yourself if you take care of your feelings. And as you gain closure over your loss, you're going to be less reactive. But the other part of it is asking for what you need and remembering that you are a social animal and that social animals need other human beings, that that's part of your physical body's need for comfort. You're wired that way. And so availing yourself of a support group of people that you can turn to when you need help. Just one more tip on that. Limit the time that you talk about it. A lot of times what people who are in grief do is they, they swamp the people that are, are there to help them. They use them up. They, they suck them dry. And if you create a, a container for it and you say, you know what, I just need you to listen. You don't have to fix anything. I just want you to listen for 10 minutes and just let me rant. That can be very, very powerful. And afterwards, because there's no interruption, you get to just say anything you want, and the other person is actually relieved of the responsibility of making it better. So much easier. Oh, that's a pro-life tip, whether we're dealing with death or just day-to-day conflict. That's beautiful advice. No kidding. (laughs) Michelle, how can people find your documentary series, The Secrets of Life and Death? Well, you can see trailers on my website, which is www.secretsoflifeanddeath.com. So that's really easy. There are no spaces. It's Secrets of Life and Death. And in fact, if you Google Secrets of Life and Death, you are likely to find my website that way. It is possible to get to, to purchase copies of these, but mostly I, I just sell them to universities. So universities all over the United States have copies of these films. Wonderful. Is there anything I haven't asked you, Michelle, that you'd like to comment on or anything you'd like to add to our conversation? Well, yes, one more thing. So that's how they can get a hold or or take a look at the film. But if you are struggling with grief and having a difficult time allowing your feelings, getting closure, I want to offer my listeners a gift. My one-on-one consultation time is $500 an hour. However... For those of you who have showed up and listened and listened to the very end of this talk, I want to give you something special, and that is a grief and loss breakthrough session. This is an hour-long telephone session in which I will help you to get in touch with how you want your life after loss and also the obstacles, the things that are just standing in your way. One of the things that I didn't talk about too much in our conversation is how grief or loss can be a doorway to transforming your life. And there are many, many stories about this, of how people have totally changed from a significant loss. And indeed, of course, my own life was that way. After my parents died, I went on to make three documentary films and got involved in doing presentations all over the Bay Area, teaching people, professionals, and getting involved in helping people who are just struggling with grief and loss. Outstanding. Yeah. So how can they do that? Yes, exactly. How can they do that? You can just send me an email and I will send you a link to my scheduler. My email address is mp for Michelle Petacolis at secretsoflifeanddeath.com. Excellent. Perfect. Transpersonal radio listeners, if you want to take advantage of this free gift, which is it's a beautiful gift and well worth an hour of your time to talk to Michelle. She's an expert in grief and the process of how to rebuild your life. So not just surviving after the loss of a loved one, but how to thrive and how to avoid pitfalls of grief so that you can move forward and live your life with abundance. Go ahead and send Michelle an email at mp at 
secretsoflifeanddeath.com and she will provide you with a link to schedule a time to speak with her. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing so much wonderful information, guidance, and insight for our listeners around death and the grieving process. I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome, Angela, and thank you for giving me this opportunity. Hey, I want to give a shout out to Steve Schoen, an accomplished professional voice actor and audio producer who created my new intro and outro for Transpersonal Radio. Steve is based out of the Sacramento, California area. If you'd like to hire Steve for voiceover work, you can find him at soundsofmyvoice.com. That's sounds with an S, soundsofmyvoice.com. Steve is also an event entertainer and wedding DJ. If you want to liven up your event with a truly talented and fun personality, check out sacramentoweddingdj.com. You can also find Steve on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash steve.shown. That's S-C-H-O-N. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trans Transpersonal Radio. If you'd like to suggest a future future topic or be a guest, visit transpersonalradio.com. Call the hotline at 619-800-6057 or like our page, facebook.com/transpersonalradio.